This is Joe, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Daniel, who found a new meaning in life and a new way of life through prostate cancer, which is incredible. So check it out. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on chat with me. I really appreciate it. Daniel, I really want to start at the beginning and I really want to understand where you're coming from with, with prostate cancer. When did it all happen and, and how did you react when you first found out you had it? Well, I, I only found out because I was having annual checks because my father had died of prostate cancer and I knew it was, um, it ran in families. So I just went for an annual PSA check, never expecting it to be, uh, bad at all, but, uh, yeah, one of the times I went and my doctor said, oh, we need to look at this a bit more. I, I wasn't outside the limits. You know, I was still 3.6, which is well inside the four in the UK that you um, have to breach before they send you to a specialist. But he said because it had gone from, well, it had, it had doubled within about a year. So even though it had gone from 1.8 to 3.6, normally I wouldn't have been seeing it. It had been classed as an okay by a less experienced doctor. Yeah, right. And and how did you react? Like, what was going through your mind? Oh, when I was given the news. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I skipped into hospital that day because I'd just been accepted onto a university degree. Oh, wow. Four-year course. And I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. So I didn't even have test results on my mind because that's all I was thinking of. And, um, you know, when you've been at the age I was at then, You've been back to your doctor in the hospital so many times for your test results. And it's so boring, isn't it? They say, <laughs> yeah, everything's fine, Daniel. Yeah, come back next year. You know, so I just sat down for more of the same. Yeah. And he said, Unfortunately, you have got prostate cancer. And you know, when you see in the films where someone's given news and all the background goes blurred and the sound goes <laughs> off. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I'm having a stroke. It was just like that. Everything just went fuzzy and I couldn't hear his words. His words started to fade out. And all I was thinking of was, my God, I'm dying. Because, you know, child of the 60s, I mean, cancer equals death. And there wasn't any other scenario usually. But uh, looking back, I needn't have been as worried at that stage. But at the time, it was uh, pretty shattering. Absolutely. I mean, I remember that's... Um... That's what happened to me as well. Like the whole, the whole world kind of came to a stop and everything was like in slow motion and like the whole sound was muffled. It's, it was just bizarre. Like, I, I, and yeah, I remember like the, I was sitting at the urologist's office and like nothing made sense. Like it just didn't connect, you know? That's right. And they just go, I left that day with a, a pile of leaflets. And the worst thing that day I left with was a 24-hour helpline number because I looked at that number and I thought, this is like having a connection with God. At least I can ask anybody anything, anytime I want. And I took that number home. And the first time I rang it, it went onto an answer machine, you know, yeah. voicemail. <laughs> wow. So I tried it a few more times. About the fifth time I tried it, there was nothing. And at a later date, I found out that there wasn't actually anyone manning that. And the tape had actually run out because it was the weekend. Oh, no. 
Would you believe it? You <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's me wanting to get in touch with someone who, could, who knew what was going on inside my body. And it was a blooming machine on some specialist desk. <laughs> God, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So as a, that was all part of the inquiry six months down the line when I ended up holding a protest outside the hospital because I, I had no treatment of any kind for 18 months. And I'm convinced they were just waiting for me to die, you know, because why else wouldn't they give someone with um, Gleason 7 prostate cancer why wouldn't they give them any treatment so so what what, what happened like what, why weren't you treated what's the story with that with that um I, i was in a system where i was just floating along and nobody really knew where i was up to or where anybody else was up to it was a broken system an admin system mainly but nobody was looking at anybody and uh to this day i You know, when, you, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you think some great NHS machine is going to jump into action and they'll know exactly what to do at every step of the way. But nothing like that. It was just I was floating down a river. At the end was the waterfall of death. And I was sort of, nobody knew I was there. It wasn't until I, I decided to hold a protest outside the hospital. I'd, I'd never held one in my life, so I didn't even know how to make a placard. But... Um, As part of this protest, um, well, the hospital got to know about it, and they did me the biggest favor ever in the whole campaign, which was they threatened to sue me if I went ahead with the protest. So <laughs> it's ridiculous. That, I sent that to the TV, the national papers, and the Daily Mail got involved, and the BBC. And as a result, we went ahead with the protest. The whole hospital board resigned. Um, it was just chaos at the hospital. And there was a big inquiry. It, it was. It, it all just went crazy after that, you know. Yeah. So it, is that the time when you decided to start a blog? Yeah. Uh, well, it was because I'd already started the blog. Right. Uh, I could use that as evidence of what happened to me every day since diagnosis. So if you are diagnosed, I mean, start a blog, even if it's only as a diary of events of what's happening to you, because you can look back at, on that at any stage. Um, either for your own personal benefit or for a surgeon's benefit. Um, it's a real record of what's happened to you that doesn't exist in the hospital system. Yeah, that's a great point, Daniel. And I, th- I guess it's also important for, for people um, in your life, your partner, um, your friends, your family. I mean, it, it, it's just crazy. I mean, what about your wife? How, how did she uh, take it all? My wife? <laughs> uh, I... Well, from my perspective, uh, she was in more of a state of shock than I was. And I was more, more worried for her than I was for me, really. I think that's pretty common to most men I've talked to. Um, yeah, she was just in t- terrible shock. She was very supportive, and she was the main person I talked to. But um, I don't know if she'd describe it any differently. But, yeah, just as much shock as I was. And, and did you feel that... Other people in your life, like your your friends, uh, your um, people maybe you worked with before or um, someone else, did you feel supported in the way that you wanted to be supported from them? Uh, the friends bit, that was a strange bit because some people who had been friends for a long time suddenly disappeared. Um, like I'd only discovered I'd got a half-sister about three years before who became, we became very, very close. And when she found I had cancer, I'd never heard from her since. It was like, Oh my God, he's going to die. I've only just found him. 
So she threw me in the bin really quickly, you know, and set fire to me. But um, most other people, people who, are, who were only acquaintances became a real support. Um, so it was a mixed bag, really. All the family were fairly good, but um, friends, I, I couldn't believe some so good and some so bad. But I guess everybody deals with it differently. It's it's pretty shocking, isn't it? I mean, um, it's the same same thing happened to me as well. And did you have any sort of explanation to yourself, like why did people who didn't support you uh, that have disappeared from your life, as you say, why did that happen? I think they were um, <coughs> scared of losing me, you know, and they didn't know how to. They didn't know what to say, how to bring up the subject, how to. They, they couldn't deal with it, whereas I was dealing with it, because you have to, don't you? Yep. Um, but they didn't have to deal with it, and it was a much easier thing for them to cross me off their Christmas card list, and that was their way of coping, I guess. I don't know if the same if you had the same thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, I, I guess definitely that there was a part of people probably couldn't deal with it in a way, and I think some of it was... You know, it sounds ridiculous, but I think some of it is people might think of it as a disease, right? Like, oh my God, you have it, and, and like I could catch it too. Not, not on a level, not on like on an intellectual level, but on sub subconscious level. I don't know if it makes any sense at all. I think that's right. Yeah, no, I, I remember talking in the uh, various forums uh, about that type of thing, and yeah, you suddenly become. It's like when people get AIDS. Uh, suddenly you become unclean. Yep, exactly. You know? yep. Keep away from him. He's got prostate cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So was was your blog, was, was that something that, that helped you personally to, to deal with it all? Uh, yeah, that was one of my main helps, actually, because um, it, was, it was my daughter, Sasha, who said, why don't you start a blog? And, of course, my question, first question was, What's a blog? <laughs> I don't know what a blog was. Um, so she explained, and uh, once I started it, when I look back at the early posts, the writing's terrible, and my progression in writing over the years in that blog led me to the job that I do now because at first it was just somewhere that I went every day and I knew that I could write down all my thoughts, all my worries, everything. And once I'd done that, It was like um, I gained peace from it, you know? Yeah. And people would uh, respond to the blog and reply to the blog. And it, it was, uh, I've always had a problem with, well, always had a problem with stress until I realized that on a blog, if you write down stuff, it can relieve you in a way from all that stress just by putting it on paper. Yeah, absolutely. And how did, how did people find out about your blog? Um, I suppose that, I put it out on Facebook and places like that to, to family and friends. But the, the main thing was when it was featured in the Daily Mail and also on the One Show in the UK um, on the BBC, then it became big. In fact, if the hospital hadn't have threatened to sue me, my blog would still be just a, a non-entity. Whereas, as it is, by doing that, they turned it into a blog which has won two awards in America for Best Prostate Cancer Blog of the Year. And, you know, I couldn't have done that without that solicitor's letter from the NHS. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what sort of comments uh, did you get from, I guess, people who also had prostate cancer from uh, maybe their partners or friends? What was that like? Yeah, my, my friends were were outraged at the at my struggle to get treatment. I don't think they could really believe that, you know, I think they thought I might be exaggerating at first because even I couldn't believe what was happening to me. But um, there was just general outrage. But it was at a time when there were cases all over the country. You know, the NHS was slowly collapsing, as it is now still. And there, in any collapse like that, there are victims. And I was becoming one of those. And the sad thing is that the people in the N NHS, the top people who are running the um, trusts, as they resign, they nearly always get great jobs in either Australia or New Zealand. And wow. they, get, they get them all on Duff references as well. Because when, when the woman who ran the trust where I was resigned, she disappeared. And I thought, well, she'll never work again, obviously. She wouldn't even meet me. And then six months later, I found out she was the head of a trust in New Zealand. So I wow. wrote to that trust and I said, you must have got references, surely. But the references that she'd given were references from a previous job. They didn't even know she'd been there. It was bizarre. It was you know, for, for so, a job so important. So I, I wrote to the um, Ministry of Health in New Zealand and said, do you realize that there are so many of these guys failing in England, coming over and getting plum jobs with false references to New Zealand? I didn't even get a reply because I believe they're all stitched up in the same thing, you know? Yeah, wow. Yeah, there's a big cream off there that we're all unaware of. That was quite sad, really, because... Uh, most of the people who resigned from the hospital after my case are now in very good jobs, but not in England, of course. So, did you think that, like with your story, did, did that bring about positive changes? Uh, it definitely brought about positive changes, yeah. Whether they were lasting changes, I'm not sure, but uh, I, I was a bit disappointed with the, with the apathy around the whole system here shown by the public, you know? that they resign themselves to the way things are. And if more people went to their hospital and started to shout about it, I think things would improve to the same extent that they improved when I did that. But there's um, people are not willing to get off their bums and get out there these days. What do you believe is at the root of the problem? Is it the process? Is it funding? What was, what was the problem? Why was it all happening? Uh, the problem was administration. I don't think the problem was with nurses or doctors. Doctors and nurses are not very good at admin, so they have an admin section that keeps everybody, you know, on the on the track. And that didn't really exist. Um, when I complained about that and they investigated it, there wasn't really a process in place. Uh, and that's why my most important message of all to anybody who's diagnosed with prostate cancer is to become your own case manager. Don't think that there is somebody out there who cares, cares more about you than you do, because there isn't. And if you imagine for one minute that there's a system set up to look after you, then uh, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Be your own case manager, number one rule. That makes so much sense, Daniel. And do you think that really that applies to other areas in your life? Like, I guess the way that I see it is when you start to have cancer, I think 
I would say that you need to become selfish, selfish in a way that you have to put yourself first. I think so many of us, especially men, um, we kind of dedicate ourselves to a cause and, and put someone else first. But I think sometimes it's like being on a plane where you, you know, you, you have to put the safety mask on first. You know, I think we really have to put ourselves first in order to help others. Would you agree yeah, with that? I agree completely. I, I was in the, in the British Army. And uh, it was number one rule, you know, um, as soon as you come under fire, you protect yourself first, because if you don't do that, you can't protect others. And it's exactly the same with prostate cancer. If you're dead, you're not going to help anybody. But if you can survive this, then you can, like I do now, you can be so much use to others, you know, raising awareness and raising funds and counseling others. You, you know, it, it changed my life for the better. You're such a, an inspiration, Daniel, with, with all those changes that happened with prostate cancer and uh, as you were going through treatment, I guess you made the choice to be proactive, to help others. C can you tell us about all of the, all of those stuff that you started to do and, and how's that helped you as well? Yeah. Well, I've always been the type of person who, who puts themselves out to help others anyway. So. It wasn't as hard for me, but I, along the way, I did meet people with a lot of different reactions. You know, some people get prostate cancer, they stay indoors, they hide and they die. They don't tell anyone even. Um, so it's very much down to your personality, I think. So I was lucky in the way that I was an outgoing person anyway, and I enjoy helping people. So when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, it was just an extension of that wanting to help people. Uh, and it just flowed fairly naturally. But I do feel desperately sorry for people who can't open up and can't talk about it. And but they'll be like that in in other walks of their life, in other scenarios, not just prostate cancer. So it, the more open you can be about it, the more help you're going to get and the more you'll be able to help other people. What sort of similarities did you pick up on? I mean, you, you, you've been around a lot of people with prostate cancer on the forums. You've met them face to face. Did you notice some things that I guess people had in common in terms of their reactions, in terms of coping, in terms of going through treatment? And if so, what advice would you have for, for, for folks who are going through that sort of experience? Well, when they were diagnosed, everybody has, um, almost identical experience, you know, the shock, the, um, it's after that initial experience that everybody had in common, it's how you go on from there. And that's where everybody branched out different ways. There was people who dealt with it in the, hey, this is not going to beat me, I'm going to kick its ass type person down to the, I'm going to go home now and lock the door and die. And everybody else was in between there somewhere. But most most people, it changed their lives for the better. If they survived, it did change their lives for, for the better. It gave them a whole new take on life. I remember after I found out that I wasn't going to die immediately, I, I went out into a woods and I started talking to plants and trees and touching them because I'd never done that before. And I thought, I hope nobody's going to, nobody's watching. <laughs> wow. There's going to be a white van pull up soon and take me away. <laughs> but, you know, I get down on the ground and look at ants' nests and spiders, and uh, I just wanted to see everything so more clearly because I'd never done that before. I thought I thought I was going to die. Now I've got a bit of time. 
And that bit of time now, I'm still in remission seven mm-hmm. years later. But um, yeah, it, it does. If without that diagnosis, my life would have wouldn't have been as rich. Yeah, absolutely. And did that also make you, I guess, reassess your life before cancer? You know, like did you start to look at things in a, in a different way? I, yeah, I did. I, I look back on my life at some of the things I'd done, some of the, a lot of the time I'd wasted on stupid stuff, you know, um, when I could have done far more positive things. And um, I suppose as you get older anyway, time becomes naturally more valuable. But a diagnosis of cancer along the way, if you survive it, can kick that process in earlier. And I think that's just what happened with me. Um You know, I wasted too much time, and uh, I don't waste any time now. And, uh, yeah, so I'm thankful for that. Absolutely. And, and speaking about not wasting time, I know you made so many changes in your life. You, I believe you started your own company, and, and now you live in Bangkok, and you're the treasurer of the of the local prostate cancer group, and the, you, uh, you're a Macmillan volunteer. You've done so, so many things. I mean, how did it all come about? And... How does it all make you feel? Well, all the things you've said are in slightly different order, but they, they were all true at one time. But I, I, I did, after diagnosis, um, then I started the blog. I ended up, I had to decide whether to do the degree or not because I was diagnosed at the same time I'd found out I'd just gone to the course. So I'm dying and I'm starting a degree which lasts four years. Um, what shall I do? So I thought, well, if I start the degree, it'll be far too important to have to finish that. So there's no way I'm going to die before the end of that. Perfect. So, <laughs> That's the way. So I, so I started the degree anyway. Then in the final year of the degree, it was a de- um, wildlife and media degree. I got the opportunity to move out to South Africa where my wife started um, a company. So I, I joined her out there finished the last year of my degree there. But then um, she woke up one morning and looked in the papers and there was a job in Bangkok. So we ended up moving to Bangkok. I could never believe I'd live in Bangkok, but um, now I'd never want to leave it. So then once in Bangkok, I start to get really bored, nothing to do. So I I started doing a bit of writing as voluntarily, really, at first for the expat life magazine scene out here. And then I started doing a bit of proofreading and copywriting. And then I started my own website. And now it's just gone on and on from there. And now I'm even on an advisory panel at the Ministry of Education in Bangkok now. That's fantastic. So it's really strange how I came from... My life before diagnosis, which was mainly, well, I was in the military, followed by the aircraft industry, then the hotel trade for 20 years. Being a writer, copywriter, proofreader, when my worst subject at school was English, was really a strange outcome. So, Daniel, did you finish the degree? Yeah, I did. I got a 2-1 as well. And that was in spite of having surgery um, and having to have three months off in the first year. Wow. So, When I graduated, that was, I was with my wife. It was probably one of the happiest days of my life, uh, a day that I never thought I'd see um, a few years before that. That's amazing. I think, and I think that's a great metaphor for cancer, that it's, it's an education all of its own, isn't it? It is. It, it can, 
like I said, I always have to say if you survive it, because sadly some people don't and it takes them very quickly. But if you do, then it can be the best thing that could have possibly happened to you. And it sounds strange because it leaves you with other handicaps as well. But it's still mentally, it's just, uh, it's, it's just been great. How can you say that about cancer? It's just been great. <laughs> yeah, that's something you don't expect to hear, right? No, I, I even qualified as a, a language teacher, a CELTA language teacher, um, when I came to Bangkok. I mean, me teaching English, you know, you should see my school reports when I left. <laughs> I had an Irish mother and a Belgian father, so there was never any hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And Daniel, if you had a minute with someone who recently got diagnosed with cancer, what would you tell them? Um, well, the first thing I tell them is to be your own case manager, because I know we've covered this before, but don't think that there is somebody out there who cares more about you than you do about yourself. Start researching, know what you've got, know how to deal with it. Uh, other people can pr provide the skills, but you need to know what's going on because without that knowledge, if, if you hide your head in the sand, then you're leaving it to luck. Whereas if you become your own case manager, you, you not only stand a chance, but knowing what's going on helps you to cope with it. You can have an effect, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. When I, as soon as I immersed myself like in cancer and I did my research, I went into the forums, I found out exactly what the probable outcomes are and you know what what, what the treatment steps are and what, what are my options exactly to the point where I knew exactly what was happening. It not only really helped me in terms of like my anxiety and my fear and all of that, but it also it also helped me tremendously by by going to see the specialist and asking informed questions. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I was asking my specialist questions, um, I think they were surprised at my knowledge. You know, um, certainly overnight, I knew more than my family doctor about prostate cancer. Um, the specialist, I think right now, I probably know almost as much as they do. Um, in fact, I, I interviewed a specialist in Bangkok recently for the Expat Life magazine, and he was amazed at my knowledge. You know, he, he offered me his white coat before I left. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, what is in your experience the best way to do research? I mean, is there particular resources you would recommend online? Is it going to the forums maybe? I don't know what it's like in Australia, but the UK prostate cancer charity um, has some great information on it and some really good links. Um, but the forums are the, for me, that was the best place to go because you're talking to people at all different stages. Some of those guys, are, some of those guys are dying sadly, but even the ones who are dying are passing you links to information that they've researched. And it's a, a massive wealth of knowledge between all those people. You go on there and ask a question, and it's like having a hundred specialists immediately, you know, zap, here's the answer. And when you get more knowledgeable yourself, you find yourself helping new people coming onto the site who have just been diagnosed. The forums, without a doubt, are the most helpful, were the most helpful thing to me in, in, especially in the early days when I knew nothing. 
Yeah, it's absolutely the same for me. And uh, I, I went to the testicular cancer forums and, and the guys there were so incredibly supportive and they were uh, sharing their stories. And another thing that really, really helped me was, I don't know if this happened to you, Daniel, but whenever I had any type of symptom, you know, whether it was, uh, <laughs> whether it was a headache, anything, I would immediately think, this is cancer. <laughs> I give you a classic example here. I was shortly after diagnosis, I went out to Cyprus uh, to have my last holiday. You know what I mean? My no, very no. last holiday because, hey, man, I was going to be dead next year. And on this holiday, I started to get a red rash between my leg and my scrotum. And this had never happened to me before. And then it started on the other side. And I tried to phone the UK to the hospital, but they weren't allowed to speak to you at the hospital by phone from overseas. I don't know. It was Anyway, I, I was in a terrible state. To cut a long story short, a few weeks down the line, I found out it was a condition called jock itch, which is just caused by <laughs> bacteria in the sweat buildup between the leg and the scrotum. But to me, it was the cancer eating through my leg, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I... I and for me, what really helped me was like when, when I would put out something as ridiculous as, 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 as you know, my experiences on the forum, I would immediately get people saying to me, no, just calm down. It's, you know, it's something else or whatever, right? Like it was just, yeah. it was, it was really supportive to know that, you know, almost, you know, within a matter of, um, hours and sometimes minutes, there would be people answering my questions and that really enabled me to just come down, take a step back and, and really put it into perspective, you know? Yeah, that's right. It, it helped, didn't it? It's because stuff like that, you don't need to make an appointment and wait weeks to see a specialist. And then by the time you have that symptoms gone anyway, and you never knew what it was, but it worried the hell out of you, you can get it instantly. Just go on the forum, ask the question and what they're all there. Absolutely. Daniel, and is there like one particular thing that has helped you deal with cancer on a daily basis? Wow, that's a, uh, I suppose now it's just being grateful to be alive every day. Um, there isn't really one thing that I, that occurs to me daily now, except other than the, you know, having the gift of life still and just being grateful and wanting to help others not go through what I went through. That, that keeps me going. Yeah, that's fantastic. And if someone wanted to find out more about your journey and, and read your blog, what would they do? Uh, they just go um, on the link to www.danielsancier.blogspot.com. Not an easy name to, to remember, <laughs> but uh, uh, they, they'd find me on uh, on Facebook even um, with the name Sancier, S-E-N-C-I-E-R, Daniel. Um, and even now, you know, people contact me now who've picked up on my blog and ask me questions. Not so much. Once you're seven years down the line, they want to talk to someone who's still in the first year because they've got more of an up-to-date experience. But people who are a similar distance down the line, I've kept in touch with a lot of them. And, you know, a lot of us are still very, very lucky. Thank you so much, Daniel. You're, you're an inspiration. Well, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Joe, and thanks very much for contacting me. Pleasure to help. 